This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, I'm David Liu, rheumatologist from Melbourne, Australia, reporting for Room Now from this virtual ACR 2020 uh, here online. It's been a great meeting, lots of great content across the board today. I wanted to tell you about one particular abstract that made one of the plenaries and also was mentioned in the press conference. And that's a, it covers a very topical area. It's uh, uh, from investigators from Columbia, uh, from, uh, from Columbia University, uh, looking at particularly about hydroxychloroquine and QTC prolongation. And this has really been in the, in the media as of late uh, and in the general consciousness. Before this, we'd, we've, we obviously as rheumatologists love hydroxychloroquine for the R indications with the, the proven benefit that we know associates with that, the life-saving benefit that, that occurs in lupus um, with hydroxychloroquine, and then the uh, really beneficial effect we can see with um, hydroxychloroquine in addition to things like methotrexate and rheumatoid arthritis. But um, that's all been thrown in recent times. And I remember first when I heard about hydroxychloroquine and COVID, the discussion that came up from our pharmacists about, well, what have you been doing about the QTC interval um, and all the discussion that surrounded that. And of course, part of the concern about using hydroxychloroquine in COVID um, has not just been about um, cannibalizing the supply for our rheumatic disease patients, but more importantly for the patients who do receive it for COVID, um, are they potentially at uh, risk of prolonged QTC on their EKGs? Um, or, and are they potentially um, therefore at risk of tosar poire and uh, sudden cardiac death, which is not ideal, clearly. So the question um, from that, the risk in COVID comes about, well, are patients at risk? Are rheumatoid arthritis and lupus patients, are they at risk as well? So um, uh, investigators looked at this, um, looking at um, some existing cohorts where EKGs had already been taken. So 307 rheumatoid arthritis patients and 374 lupus patients. And they looked to see what the drivers of that QTC prolongation or QTC length in general were. Now they excluded patients with existing cardiovascular disease. And I think that's fair because we don't want other things that are gonna influence um, the QTC length. Um, but when they uh, looked at it and they uh, adjusted the QTC for known uh, risk factors of QTC prolongation, they saw that the um, length, the QTC length between patients treated with hydroxychloroquine um, versus patients not treated with hydroxychloroquine in that group um, of patients, uh, there was no difference. Um, so there was no association with hydroxychloroquine and QTC prolongation in general. Um, and that, but really the things that drove it were age, corticosteroid use, smoking, things that we know are linked, are linked to QTC prolongation. Now, where do we, how can we resolve this with COVID-19? And I think this really speaks to the fact that adverse drug reactions um, in general are contextual. It really depends on what drug, what, um, what drug and which disease you're using, what dose you're looking at and what combinations of medication are in play. And of course, this is exactly what differentiates the COVID use of, of hydroxychloroquine to its use that we know and love in rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Fundamentally, in COVID, we're looking at an underlying disease, which may well be affecting the heart. Uh, we're looking at 
potentially quite different doses, but more importantly, the combination with other things like azithromycin, uh, which can also lead to QCTC prolongation, and you have that um, combined effect as well. So some reassurance from the data, and when we're in doubt, we should always go to the data, that our use of hydroxychloroquine and rheumatoid arthritis um, and lupus really isn't something that we need to be worried about or necessarily um, monitoring um, EKGs for. It's uh, interesting, I ran a, um, a poll today, I've got exactly, um, in the first uh, um, a couple of hours, we've got exactly 100 votes asking you and your colleagues when we're pre prescribing hydroxychloroquine of rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, or other rheumatic diseases, do we routinely order EKG either before or during? And so the choices were 11% um, said yes, 81% um, said no, and 8% said um, why would I? And I think I can understand how that reflects in practice. So interesting provoking stuff about QTC and, uh, and hydroxychloroquine and plenty more um, about all the topical things that are happening at ACI 2020 on our website roomnow.com. Come and join us there. Thanks for joining once again and um, I'll catch up with you very soon. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope at Room Now, reporting at the ACR virtual meeting 2020. I'd like to talk about abstract number 799. My question to you is, can we get our patients to take our drugs more often? So in other words, can we improve adherence? And it's a big deal because a lot of attenuation of drug benefit, in my opinion, over time, is that they're not taking it. If you don't take their drugs, then they, their drugs don't work. So this was a very laudable randomized controlled trial. And what they did was they looked at patients with RA initiating a biological DMARD and they had electronic monitoring and they decided that adherence was anything less than 80%. And patients randomized to usual care had usual care. Patients randomizing to the electronic monitoring had basically uh, ways that they would see they weren't taking their medication. They would get alerts, they would have behavioral modification, and all sorts of important interventions. Bottom line, it didn't work. Now, does it really not work? Um, what they said was the patients overall were quite adherent. And in general, in my opinion, patients with active RA are more apt to take their new drug because it really bothers them unless if they're afraid to take it. Their RA bothers them, they have active disease. So would this work if you had a population of patients who were losing benefit on current therapy or a population of patients that you know weren't taking medications regularly and you were afraid about loss of benefit over time? I think abstract 799 raises more questions than it answers. I think it's a great idea, but the wrong population studied. So please go to at room now and follow us on Twitter. Thank you. Hello, ACR Convergence 2020. This is Dr. Robert Chow coming to you virtually from Fairfax, Virginia. I'm joined uh, today by Dr. Stephanie Wade. Um, who just had a very interesting discussion on medical education. Uh, Dr. Wade, would you care to tell us more about your uh, project? Uh, sure, thank you so much for having me, uh, Dr. Chow. Mm -hmm. um, so my talk today was on 
um, using an intervention to see if we could increase active learning within our introductory rheumatology curriculums in my training program. And so the main intervention that we performed was transitioning uh, to a flipped classroom. And so um, the reason this is important is because um, active learning has been proven in multiple studies in medical education to be um, uh, better for um, uh, helping learners sort of retain um, knowledge over time and uh, apply it better over time. And so um, we used a flipped classroom approach. And so what a flipped classroom is, is essentially just taking a traditional um, classroom model, such as uh, when we all went to you know, high school and we went to class and then we had a homework assignment and flipping it around so that instead of doing the homework assignment after the uh, class, you do some reading or learning or some sort of activity prior to coming in. And then you use your class time uh, for inquiry, application and assessment. Um, so in this model, uh, faculty would act more as a guide to trainees during interactive class cases rather than uh, just simply lecturing for 50 minutes straight. Um, and so um, what we did was we initially performed a needs assessment in the summer of 2019 on our introductory rheumatology curriculum. And we had initially found that these act, active learning was low in our introductory lectures. Um, and so then we held a faculty development workshop teaching faculty uh, how to um, implement this flipped classroom and how to um, create assignments for fellows to uh, complete prior to their talks. And then for our post-intervention period, this was the following year in the summer of 2022, and we reassessed active learning scores in the flipped classroom. Um, and so the neat thing about this and sort of the surprising thing about this was that our post-intervention period actually occurred in a virtual classroom due to the COVID-19 pandemic and pressures on uh, needing to be social distancing and uh, not being able to meet as a group in person as we uh, historically did in the past. Um, and despite this sort of inherently less interactive nature of the virtual learning environment, we did we were able to show that active learning scores increase uh, pre uh, for post intervention compared to pre intervention and this was very statistically significant. Um, so and we did this for 16 lectures in our introductory rheumatology curriculum and we use pairwise comparisons to compare each uh, lecture pre versus post intervention and found these scores go up in seven out of eight uh, active learning domains essentially. Um, so we're quite excited about our results and um, uh, it'll be interesting to potentially see how this holds up in the long run. And if at some point we're able to get back into the real life classroom, whether um, we really would see even more increases in active learning uh, using this flipped classroom model for fellowship training. That's really fantastic. Do you think that's something um, that will likely continue in your fellowship curriculum where you are currently? I hope so. I'm a third year fellow, so I'll be out going in June and, and moving sort of across the continent. Um, but I, I certainly think that it's a sustainable model that we've created. And I'm, I'm very much hoping that this is something that will be continued. Um, we, you know, sort of supplementary to our primary outcome, which was these active learning scores. We also surveyed faculty and fellows, and we found that fellows um, 
quite enjoyed this and did the vast majority of the pre-lecture assignments. And we also found that um, faculty seemed to enjoy it as well. Uh, satisfaction scores didn't change pre versus post intervention. And they've sort of already adapted their talks um, to be more interactive and to sort of um, uh, work with this model. And so I think it'd be very um, easy to continue this uh, and and may just need some ongoing um, uh, faculty development in order to continue this and expand. Right. That. And that leads me to my last question. The most important question, do you think the faculty are willing to continue this in the long term? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough to say, but certainly with fa faculty satisfaction scores being high, um, I think it is, I think it's something that once you start, it's certainly easy to continue. But this is something that we've only implemented for our introductory rheumatology fellowship curriculum, which is in the summer months each year. And so, you know, the potential would be that this could be um, used to create a more longitudinal curriculum for rheumatology fellowship programs um, and potentially have the pre reading assignments and the lectures targeting the um, uh, material that is board testable uh, and available to us through the rheumatology blueprints and the in-training exam material. Well, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate the discussion on this very interesting topic. Um, thank you everyone for join, uh, for tuning in. Uh, please follow uh, roomnow.com for coverage of ACR 2020 and please follow me on Twitter at uh, Dr. RBC. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Have a good day. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm consultant rheumatologist from Reading in the United Kingdom. And today I'm reporting from ACR 20 at the psoriatic arthritis abstract session. There has been a lot of interesting abstracts today at the ACR 20, but I wanted to highlight to you some very important abstracts, which I think will be of great uh, clinical relevance to us, because one of the things that we hope to take back from the ACR is how we can practice this in our clinic. So one of the issues that we have in our clinic as we assess patients with um, psoriatic arthritis is to try to understand where the pain might be coming from. And sometimes we see a lot of patients who have joint pains, but it appears that they don't have a lot of tender or swollen joints. And one of the theories that we think about in psoriatic arthritis is where the actual disease starts. And so there is a concept of the synovial antesis interface where this complex between the synovium and the antesis is thought to be the origin of where the inflammation starts in psoriatic arthritis. If that is the case, then we should think about how we assess in the early parts of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, the antesis or the organ that where the tendon joins onto the bone. And we need to find ways to try to assess this. Now, clinically, we have ways to do that uh, by assessing the antesis, such as around the elbows, the knees, or the Achilles tendon. But what the study has shown today is uh, abstract number 311. And I think this is of uh, importance to us because they have used ultrasound to assess the antesis synovial uh, junction. And they have found a very strong correlation with uh, the power Doppler signal and the ultrasound signal at the junction between the joint, the synovium, and the antesis. And this correlates well with uh, the clinical features and clinical examination found on these patients as well. So adding in ultrasound could be one additional way, especially in the early parts of uh, psoriatic arthritis to assess the 
and thesis where we also believe it could be the site of where the inflammation starts. Another challenge that we have in our clinic is assessing patients with fibromyalgia or coexistent fibromyalgia when they also have psoriatic arthritis. And many of our clinical scores that we use, such as the DAPSA score or the PSARC score, can often be affected by the presence of fibromyalgia. And so when we assess this, there are very important things that we need to be thinking about. And in abstract number 315 today, there is a very interesting study that showed that if you had used ultrasound in addition to your clinical examination, that it can be helpful to try to differentiate what is inflammation at the sites of joint pain or tendon pain, as opposed to what is from fibromyalgia. So they studied two groups, one group with people with fibromyalgia and one without fibromyalgia in the context of psoriatic arthritis and found that ultrasound was a quite a sensitive way in detecting the difference between the two groups. And another study in abstract 313 also showed that ultrasound was, was very sensitive in picking up swollen joints, but uh, less uh, useful in terms of picking up tender joints. And in a way that, that helps, it, it kind of helps us to understand what is inflammatory and what is non-inflammatory sites of pain. And again, ultrasound in both these two abstracts uh, could be useful for us uh, in our clinical practice. And finally, abstract 314 again uh, shows us that the ultrasound can be very useful, especially when we assess patients with psoriatic arthritis, as they have a mixture of joint disease, tendon disease, and also antesis uh, pain. And using the ultrasound helps us to determine where's the source of pain in these patients. Is it the joint? Is it in the tendons? Or is it in the antesis? And that, again, can be quite helpful for us. So in addition to our clinical examination, our clinical uh, use of our, our skills, ultrasound could be another useful way, especially in the early phases of psoriatic arthritis or in the patients who may have coexistent fibromyalgia to try to tease apart this very complex condition where there's a mixture of not only tendon, uh, but also joint and antecial pain in the context of fibromyalgia. It can be quite challenging for us. So I think today's session and today's abstracts really has helped us to kind of uh, tease apart some of these uh, challenges that we have and how we can use other imaging modalities such as ultrasound in our clinical practice. So that is um, my kind of takeaway from the psoriatic arthritis session today. I'm Anthony Chan and you can follow me on um, Synovial Joints on Twitter and I look forward to uh, reporting further as the ACR uh, conference progresses. Thank you very much. Hi, good evening. I'm Leanne Gensler, a rheumatologist from UCSF in San Francisco, and this is day one of ACR 2020. I'm here to report on spondyloarthritis for the meeting today. There were some fantastic abstracts that were presented that I'm going to review uh, for you today. They all came from oral abstract sessions. Uh, several of them really dealt with treatments in uh, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis in particular. So the first study that I'm going to talk about is the Maximize trial, and this was abstract number 0505 presented this morning by Xenophon Baraliakos on uh, patients with psoriatic arthritis who have axial involvement and really thinking about the efficacy of secukinumab on those axial manifestations. Now, these patients were defined as having axial involvement by their uh, investigator, um, and really thinking about how much disease activity they had by the BASDI, um, including patients having a lot of inflammatory back pain. 
This study really showed that patients had efficacy from an axial standpoint um, in patients with Caspar criteria psoriatic arthritis. And in fact, they had some MRI data that showed a decrease in the bone marrow edema in the sacroiliac joints and spine compared to placebo, though the confidence intervals were wide and this was a smaller group of patients. They did not report on peripheral joints, whether they had uh, swelling or tenderness or anthocytis or dactylitis. So it would be fantastic to see those data so that we can prove that this response is really the axial uh, manifestations responding and not just the general psoriatic arthritis getting better because we know that BASDI improves in peripheral disease activity too. So, but a very important study and really thinking about this group of patients who have psoriatic arthritis with axial involvement, psoriatic spondylitis, axial PSA, there are lots of ways to think about this um, and seeing that there may be real efficacy in this particular manifestation of psoriatic arthritis. The uh, next abstract that I'm going to talk about is abstract number 0507. And this was a post hoc analysis of the EXCEED trial presented by Grace Wright. Um, and this was a trial that was one of the first head-to-head -head trials of a TNF inhibitor, adalimumab, compared to secokinumab. And what they looked at in this trial is whether there were gender differences in response to treatment. And so they stratified the um, trial by men and women. And what they noted was that there was a higher treatment response and retention in men compared to women. And interestingly, secokinumab compared to adalimumab had greater efficacy in skin endpoints, but only in men. And so really what this trial is, is showing us, and I think this is something we've talked about for a while, is that as we think about clinical trials, we should really be stratifying by gender in that men and women are really different. They respond differently to treatment. And so we should really be thinking about them differently as we approach clinical trials. The third study I'm going to talk about is abstract number 0506. Um, and this was presented by Ian McInnes. It was the 52-week uh, um, extension trial of the DISCOVER trial with guselcumab and psoriatic arthritis. And what this showed was that there was sustained improvement and maintenance benefits, in particular with radiographic progression, an important endpoint, and also reassuring longer-term safety data. This is always important as we see those long-term extension studies. The um, last treatment trial I'll mention is uh, zero, abstract 0504, and this was the upadacitinib in psoriatic arthritis trial presented by Philip Meese, and this was done in patients that were refractory to biologic DMODs, really showing good efficacy in the 24-week period, um, including all core domains, and so that's also important as we think about psoriatic arthritis and, and really hoping that we don't just improve joints, but also anthocytis and dactylitis um, and, and other core domains in psoriatic disease. The final abstract that I'm going to mention was from the second oral presentation session. This was a study looking at uh, the phenotype and genotype predictors of patients that go on to develop psoriatic arthritis. It was presented by Jessie Walsh from the University of Utah. And what she showed, and I'm just gonna talk about the phenotypic predictor was that 
in patients that had psoriasis, a predictor of going on to develop psoriatic arthritis was really those patients that had nail disease. That's not a new finding, but also uh, really showing that the um, induration of the plaque, um, the, the psoriatic lesion was a predictor. And in fact, in a dose related effect and, and those patients that had more induration developed psoriatic arthritis earlier. So really thinking about those patients with more severe psoriasis having a much higher risk for going on to develop psoriatic arthritis. This is Leanne Gensler reporting for spondyloarthritis at ACR 2020. For more information, please go back to room now. Hi, this is Vela Mehta reporting from New York for ACR 2020. The abstract number that I want to talk about is 0440. And what we want to talk about is the representation of women as authors in the rheumatology research articles. So as you know, globally, there's increased representation of women over the past few decades uh, as physicians. In rheumatology, about 41% uh, of rheumatologists in the US are women. Um, the ACR estimates that by 2030, about 57% of US rheumatology workforce would be women. Um, as we all know, in academic medicine, journal article authorship is central to career advancement and promotion. And thus, it's important to look into the gender bias in authorship of scientific articles. This gender bias is well known over the years across multiple scientific disciplines. And this study aimed to look into what are the disparities or what are the gaps in in this particular research field. So all original articles published over a five-year period between January 2015 and 2019 were included in the analysis. And all rheumatology articles with an impact factor of greater than three and all general medical journals with an impact factor greater than 15 but publishing rheumatic diseases were, including, were included in this study. And the gender of the first author and the last author were determined. They, they scanned about 7,000 articles from rheumatology journals and about 100 articles from general medicine journals, again, with an impact factor, which is pretty high, greater than 15. What they found is that 51.5% articles with women had with first authors, but only 35% of women have, were senior authors in these studies. So there was definitely a gap in senior authorship. And when they looked into categories of which diseases are, do has senior authorships with women, mostly they were pain syndromes of pediatric rheumatology, whereas most articles with rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, systemic sclerosis or vasculitis had more male senior authors. Also, articles which were industry funded or investigator initiated, but, investi but industry funded had much more representation from men as compared to women. Um, and one of the key points that they make is that the that women 
were much likely to be first authors, but not as much as senior authors in randomized control trials. And as you know, randomized control trials have the highest impact in rheumatology and even medicine. So underrepresentation of women was particularly apparent in articles reported in randomized control trials, especially those funded by industry. Again, the findings may represent just low number of women in academia um, as compared to men, which is reflected in other studies. Uh, but it also highlights the importance of institutional and industry leaders to take steps to ensure women are in leadership positions and also are adequately represented in academia. Thank you so much for listening to the video. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Bella underscore Meta for more of these. Hello, I'm Jeff Curtis, and I wanted to share something quite practical that was presented at the American College of Rheumatology's virtual convergence meeting. It's plenary abstract 939. It's the results from the SEAM RA trial. So this is a trial that tested the very practical question for somebody with rheumatoid arthritis who's been doing great, like at remission or very close to it for a long time, six months, a year, or perhaps years, who's on a Tanercept and methotrexate, and perhaps a little bit of glucocorticoids, you know, prednisone up to five milligrams a day. Do those people have to stay on all those therapies for the rest of their lives? As we know, there's a whole lot of people who frankly just don't want to be on methotrexate, and they might grudgingly agree to stay on it for the most part, um, but they don't really want to be on it. And yet, if they have to remain on it for what might be years stretching into decades to maintain remission, they might be willing to do it, but they're not going to be very happy about it. And of course, if you have to keep giving yourself injections indefinitely with some of the safety concerns and the insurance and, and hassle factor associated with doing that, then so be it. But if you didn't have to do that, certainly there's a lot of our patients that might like to get off. So the purpose of this trial was to compare whether stopping methotrexate leaving you only on a Tanercept monotherapy or stopping a Tanercept and leaving you only on methotrexate monotherapy might be superior. And there's a comparison, just leave people on both and, and let them stay that way. You might think to yourself, wait, haven't I seen this trial before once or twice? Actually, you haven't. And the way in which it's different, these people had to be in remission, not DAS-28 remission, but real remission. SDI less or equal to 3.3. And even if you don't measure the SDI, you basically have to have zero or at most one tender and swollen joints, pretty normal CRP and a global score of one. Like this is real remission. This is not DAS remission. So these people had to be in the investigator's opinion doing great for at least six months. And then they had a 24 week lead in period with three visits where they pretty much had to be in SDI remission. You were allowed to bounce around just a little bit. You could have an SDI up to 11, that's up to low disease activity, but not higher than that and still qualify. So if you made it through that three visit 24 week lead in period and you more or less stayed in remission, then you could be randomized. And the randomization was two to two to one to a Tanercept monotherapy, methotrexate monotherapy, or just stay on the both as a comparison group. The main results of the study showed that a Tanercept 
was, was superior by itself to methotrexate by itself with respect to the maintenance of remission. So in other words, if you're gonna peel something back, take away the methotrexate rather than taking away the etanercept. Now, overall, roughly 50% of the etanercept monotherapy patients stayed in remission. It was only about 29% of the methotrexate monotherapy patients. That was a very statistically significant result that Delta is approaching double. Um, interestingly enough, though, in the combo therapy arm, the proportion who remained in remission at week 48 was roughly the same as a tanner set monotherapy. It was 53%. That was also significantly different than methotrexate monotherapy. So the two etanercept arms were more or less comparable. So what that teaches us is, is that if you're going to peel something off, probably better to peel off the methotrexate, but that even if you leave them exactly as is and you change nothing, but you just put them in a blinded randomized study, you know, there are people that are going to bounce in and out of remission and, you know, may have some near misses. The second important feature of the trial is, is that if they needed rescue therapy, and they needed rescue therapy if they still had persistent disease activity or flare beyond two weeks and tried some short dose glucocorticoids and some pain meds, the likelihood that you could recapture them either back to remission was about 75% or to low, low disease activity was almost 100%. So as a practical matter, what it means is, is that if you're going to try to take one of those two meds away, metho or etanercept, if that doesn't work out, the chances that you're going to get them back where they started in remission or close to it are exceedingly high and approaching 100%. So this is nearly a risk-free thing to explore with patients and see how it goes. For those that did flare or had disease worsening, by and large, that occurred into about a six to six or so month time frame. Some people a little bit early, as early as three months say, but it's really three to six months. That's the sweet spot where the people that were going to do badly uh, did badly in that time frame, um, by and large. So I think as a practical matter to communicate to patients, for those that might say, sure, I'm interested in stopping one or the other, most of my patients at least have a preference about which they'd rather to stop. Um, the trial showed that you're probably going to do better if you stop the methotrexate, continue the etanercept, but there's not that much downside if you have to put the, uh, the one that you quit taking back again. You're going to recover the vast majority of those people and, and they're going to be able to do well again. So I think as a very practically designed study uh, with regard to who's in it, you know, these actually are really the people that I personally would be taking off therapy or at least having that discussion. I think this provides some useful guidance with some real outcome data that stopping one or the other is reasonable, gives the nod to stopping the methotrexate rather than a tanercept, but then makes it in a, a fairly risk-free way to do so, to just put it back if you have to. What's not yet known is what are the predictors of people continuing to do well? There's a lot of ongoing work to try to sort that out at a patient or a patient phenotype level, but at least on average, I think this is very encouraging that for those that are interested in stopping or, or tapering therapy to off, that the chances of success are, are pretty high. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. It's the first day of the meeting. I hope you're enjoying it. I am. This is my report called Best Thing I Saw Today. And you know what? It's not the best thing I saw today, but it certainly made me think a lot. 
And that's why I'm going to present it to you because it's about practice. Specifically, it's about the issue of preclinical RA and should you use a DMARD or not. Preclinical RA is defined as patients who are at risk because they're first degree relatives, they're ACPA positive, and they have arthralgias, but they don't have swollen joints. Should you treat them? Should you watch them? Should you worry about them? Well, abstract 0481 titled Subclinical Synovitis in Arthralgia, How Often Does It Result in Clinical Arthritis was presented by Cleo Roger from uh, Erasmus. And she had a very interesting report. Actually, what they did was they looked at patients who had subclinical synovitis based on ultrasound in two large cohorts and MRI in another cohort. So these three cohorts, um, 166, 473, you know, it looks like they had almost a thousand patients between them and they followed them out over time to see what would happen to them. Um, their characteristics, they're about 40 years of age, um, mostly female as you'd expect. They had one to five tender joints, but no swollen joints. They were roughly 14 or 20% ACPA positive. One cohort was 56% ACPA positive. I've talked before and said ACPA positivity significantly increases your risk of progression to um, inflammatory arthritis and then RA. Uh, and they all had some kind of subclinical arthritis. But the number of patients who progressed to inflammatory arthritis within one year was really only about 20%. The question is why and what are you going to do about it? Well, it turns out that the most influential factor here uh, and they looked at the rate of patients not progressing to inflammatory arthritis. I think they should, most studies have actually looked at the rate of progression to inflammatory arthritis or RA, but they looked at it from the other standpoint. The bottom line is that um, ACPA positivity doubles your risk over ACPA negativity. Um, so the patients who are ACPA positive in all three cohorts had roughly a 45 to 55% chance of progression to inflammatory arthritis within one year. And I think that's the issue here. Um, and since it seems like it's a toss up, even in ACPA positive individuals, the point is, should you treat them or not? In this cohort, they were not treated. That wasn't the point of this particular study. Um, but the authors came out and said that just because you're ACPA positive, and because we've proven that you have subclinical synovitis on MR or ultrasound, you don't have clinical inflammatory arthritis until you get clinical inflammatory arthritis because it's still a toss-up. So again, I think this goes to, do you treat a lab? No. And do you treat an ultrasound or an MRI? I would say no. They have to have swollen joints that you are convinced of. Progression rates are about 50%, maybe as high as 60% in people who are going to be ACPA positive. You watch them closer. You worry about them a little bit more. You know, the more worried you get, the more you make indecisive decisions like using hydroxychloroquine. Hopefully not methotrexate or biologics. Again, they made the point that DMARD initiation in this cohort would constitute overtreatment. I'm a big fan of overtreating, but I think when you're in, still in the preclinical phase, uh, and that preclinical group of patients who might could get RA, I think you don't need to treat them until they you need to treat them, which is when they have swollen joints. That's it, and tune in for more videos on Room Now.